Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. morning. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Esther. This morning we're going to be studying the fifth chapter together. Esther chapter 5. Here we go, beginning in verse 1. The author of Esther writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And then his wife Zeresh And all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
in the grand scheme of things. I, we are really just a blip on the radar of redemptive history. You are the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So help us to be a people through this text who learn how to pray, how to act, how to wait in full confidence that you are working perfectly for our good and for your glory at all times. Let our hearts be encouraged and give the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were to make a list of Christian characters one ought to know, George Mueller should be on it. He's known for two things, his praying and the orphanage he founded almost entirely by prayer. So really one thing is praying. You won't read much that'll spur your own praying more than Roger Steer's biography of George Mueller. There are two instances in his biography that really have stuck with me throughout the years. One, if I recall correctly, was early on in the life of the orphanage. Uh, They had gathered for a breakfast that they could not enjoy because they didn't have anything to set before the children except prayer. So Mueller prayed that the Lord would provide what they needed, and just as soon as he said amen, we're told, there was a knock at the door, and it was the driver of a carriage whose wheel had broken just outside the orphanage, and as it happened, you guessed it, it was carrying perishable items like bread and milk, and so the Lord provided their daily bread immediately. Another instance involved his praying for three unbelieving friends. Uh, As it goes, he prayed for them for 50 years or more. And he died without seeing any of the three come to faith in Christ. Then, within weeks of his having died, all three of them came to place their trust in Jesus. A wonderful work of God for which he had to wait not just in this life, but like heaven's side. This morning as we study chapter 5, uh, we're meant to begin exploring the relationship between a few things here. The relationship between faithful prayer, thoughtful practice, and perfect providence. Right? That oh-so-necessary balance between human responsibility and divine sovereignty And that especially as we aim to be public servants of God's kingdom in this fallen world which demands real steps into the unknown by faith in Him who knows everything. What Jesus teaches us should be so encouraging that while we're walking by faith and therefore not by sight, our Father is not so limited. Before we even discover what we think we need so as to ask Him for it, our Father knows and has known exactly what we do actually need so that we can walk by faith fully assured of His perfect provision at the perfect time. We never take a step in front of God. Unknown to God. Unprovided for by God. 
We may not always get what we want or what we ask when we want or ask for it. We may have to wait a moment in this life or maybe, as Mueller had to, a bit even beyond our death. But we can trust that in our praying and in our acting and in our waiting, God is ever working His good and sovereign will. So with that then, let's come to our first heading here. It's very simply, just one word, life. Life. Why life? Well, how does the chapter begin? On the third day. On the third day. So it's Easter time for Esther. Right? It's resurrection day. as She goes in principle to ironically lay down her life. And that in itself is an evidence of the new life that is really in Esther. It's the paradox of the Christian life, isn't it? That when spiritually dead, we live to self. But when made spiritually alive, we die to self and we begin to live to God. Which is what we see here. Before we dive in, we're supposed to recall what's gone just before this scene. There's a period of three days in which Esther and all the Jews in Susa engaged in fasting and prayer to God. And so I want us to see that there is a connection here to make between their pursuit of God in prayer and Esther's then going to intercede for them as a decided and courageous woman of God. The graces that ultimately are going to go with her steps were preceded by corporate fasting and prayer, not just personal prayer, but prayer in community, prayer in the context of God's people. That's what's gone just before all of this. That's what's paving the way. That's what proves to be the means of grace for Esther. Right? It's the drift. It's the drift of cultural individualism into the church that has us take steps of faith in isolation from the collective prayers of the church. Let me just tell you something here. I, me, I, am not an island of wisdom, faith, know-how, and courage unto myself. We need to hear that today. Everything around us would have us believe otherwise, that we are completely self-sufficient. But in myself, I lack wisdom. In myself, I lack faith. Don't you? In myself, I lack know-how. In myself, I lack courage. I need more than me. I need the body of Christ. We need each other if ever we're to truly live and walk by what God means by faith. Esther needed the prayers of God's people. Question. How might this scene have gone differently without that time of prayer? Beloved, God is sovereign. He's God. God is sovereign. And in His sovereignty, He's ordained the means just as much as the ends He's seen best to achieve thereby. In other words, without their fasting and praying, 
there's no guarantee that things would have gone the way that they end up going in this scene. So we can say that God is sovereign, meticulously sovereign, without nullifying the fact that we are still responsible actors in the inscrutable drama of redemption. He is sovereign. Therefore, pray. Indeed, why pray at all if God is not meticulously, absolutely, totally sovereign? Several thoughts here, but I'll just ask this and leave it. In the process of making decisions as believers and stepping out then in faith, are we entrusting ourselves to God at least by seeking out the collaborative prayers of His people? Is that on the radar when we're making our decisions? Isn't this what Jesus did in Gethsemane just prior to the cross? He wasn't like, I got this. He looked to Peter and those guys and said, watch and pray because I, the Son of God, like I need your prayers as I've decided for the cross. May it be then for us when time comes for bearing crosses, for making self-sacrificial decisions. Well, that time is now for Esther. She's fasted and prayed. They have fasted and prayed. And so on the third day, she now acts. She acts. Fasting and prayer, I want you to see, manifest in courageous action, responsibility. What's done in the prayer closet is meant to make us bold and public for God out and amongst the world. Bowing down in prayer begets bravery in public. And a new kind of Shrewdness. One of the things I love in Esther is how heart change redirects the flow of natural character traits. She's still Esther. She's still her. She's just governed now by a new principle of divine life. She's always been shrewd. We've seen that already in the book. But her shrewdness will now be used for the purposes of God instead of self-promotion. Similarly, I want you to notice, she puts on her royal Persian robes, her Persian robes. Uh, she still looks the part of that world, but the, the inner woman now is discernibly altered. She's in that world, but she's no longer of it. The Persian queen is now a woman of God. And those royal robes are now leveraged for the salvation of God's people. It is a glorious thing to witness the recycling power of grace in the personality of the redeemed. To see how God takes what once belonged and was used for sin and then regenerating it, turns it around and begins to use it for His glory. That's wonderful. Well, again, with Esther, it's her shrewdness. Esther is a skilled tactician. She is a smart cookie. She's very deliberate in acting to gain the king's favor here. And rightly so. I don't think we need reminding at this point, but Ahasuerus was not known as Ahasuerus the merciful or the patient or the thoughtful. I call him the gullible King Headache or Heart Attack. 
or whatever we said at the beginning. And we've seen this, haven't we? Ahasuerus is a terribly unstable figure in the story. And now he has a whole lot on the line in killing those that Esther is going to seek to save. Nonetheless, here she goes on the wings of prayer and providence. Let us remind ourselves, Esther doesn't know what's going to happen next. We've read ahead of her. She has a hope, but she doesn't have knowledge. She has faith, but not sight. And she's okay with that. She's robed in prayer. She's content with God's outcome. And far from that then quenching her activity, it actually seems to fuel it. Again, she puts off her sackcloth and ashes, and she puts on her royal robes. She doesn't burst in to the king's space all out of sorts. She calmly enters the inner court and stands where he might see her presence. She knows him. And she knows that technically she's just broken a law that could result in her death. And so she approaches him in the path of honor and dignity and carefulness. She approaches him wisely. And shrewdly. And it works. (laughs) He sees her. And seeing her. Is incredibly inclined. To favor her. So that he holds out to her. The golden scepter in his hand. She gets the. Thumbs up. You were here last week. The merciless. Actually extends. Mercy. And Esther, no doubt encouraged, accepts of this mercy. And this opens up a dialogue that's been rooted in an opened and now generous heart. Queen Esther, whatever you desire, I pledge and promise to give you absolutely. That's the gist of it. Now, there's all kinds of debate about Esther's course of action at this point. If, as it appears, she's got this king on a string, why don't she just pull the string? Why does she wait? Why does she then invite he and Haman, not just to one feast, but to two feasts? I don't think it's because she's doubly hungry from three days of fasting. I don't think. Nor do I think, as some do, that it's showing some lack of faith or lack of courage or lack of clarity. I think just the opposite, actually. I think she knows exactly what she's doing. I think it's part of her plan that's been derived from prayer in the context of God's people. In inviting the king and Haman, she's invited the enemy for accountability. The king has a Texas-sized ego. Sorry, Ian. I wouldn't have said that if I didn't believe you were a humble brother. The king has a Texas-sized ego. And won't want to look bad in front of Haman by going back on a word that he's now publicly pledged to Esther. Moreover, these invitations effectively shift the power in the story. Uh, She's entered the king's realm. 
But by inviting them to a feast, Esther sort of gains the high ground for the rest of the book. Okay? She's found her home turf. Her table takes him off his throne. Her party eases the tension that can exist when talking policy. And more specific to the second feast, after the king's held out his grace again, the wording in verse 8 seems to, seems to indicate a, a purposeful pursuit of an irrevocable yes and amen. So, feast one. Let's change the scenery, and in front of the king's chief official, let's bind the king's pledge to the king's presence at feast two. That's what's going on. She's done what she's done to put the king between a rock and a hard place. He's already made an irrevocable edict to destroy her people, so she needs him to make a pledge to her that is equally irrevocable. question will become, what will turn the tide of the king's heart in one way or the other? Or better, who? Which brings me back to this, and we'll move along. What we've just witnessed is not at all about our ability to trust in the good nature of man. I know he's a wild boar of a man, but deep down Ahasuerus really is just a softie. No. This is about our ability to trust in the gracious character of our covenant Lord. Who holds the king's heart in his hand, as Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, and turns it wherever he Ahasuerus doesn't have to look upon her favorably. He doesn't have to extend to her the golden scepter. He doesn't have to welcome her request. He doesn't have to promise her the kingdom. He doesn't have to attend her feast. He doesn't have to invite Haman. He doesn't have to persist in generosity for one hour, much less 24 of them. But he does all of that. Why? Because he's good and kind and loves her so much? Come on now. No. It's because God's people fasted and sought the Lord in prayer. It's because they entered his throne room for mercy. And as he is disposed to be merciful to his people, he heard and answered, and in this specific case, by common grace, inclined this boar's pitch black heart to act against his nature in steadfast charity. Dear ones, let's not doubt who rules the universe. Or that by Christ, in His mercy alone, we have the true heart and hearing of Him who sits on that throne. Let's not doubt the practical power of believing prayer. But in new life, and on the back of that kind of prayer, let's step out in faith, plan well, and live boldly for God and His people, and we will by and by, find graces. Maybe not always immediately as here, 
or in the case of George Mueller, praying for breakfast. But sooner or later, and God will get all the glory. Is this how we are stepping into, say, a ministry in this church? Is this how we're stepping into a ministry maybe on campus? Is this how we're stepping into a conversation with a lost neighbor about Jesus? Is this how we're stepping into a life-altering decision like marriage, like children, like more children, like life after school, life after work, life for Christ under God in the public eye? We don't exactly know what's going to happen when we take those steps. But are we stepping into it at least prayerfully and thoughtfully and responsibly and faithfully and contentedly? Only let God be glorified and as related, His people edified. Esther is a model, only now of a different sort. She's a model, we might say, of Resurrection, life. Well, the scene is ended. And it's important to know what Esther knows. And it's also important to know what Esther does not know. For all she knows, she's got a date with the king in the hope her request will overturn Haman's edict. But what happens as she lay down to sleep? And, and what God will do while she sleeps to tip the scales in her favor, she doesn't know anything about that. So, with an eye to him who never sleeps, nor slumbers. Let's come to Haman. In a scene really in verses 9 to 14 that's marked by death, beginning with Haman's own heart. Right? We, we would be hard-pressed to find a person so full of himself. And that's in a book that features Ahasuerus. Okay? That said, let's be careful thinking we can't gain anything by him as if we don't, to some degree, have our own bouts with meism and pride. As we enter the scene, we enter really a tale of two cities. A tale of two worldviews. One now that's rich in faith and mercy and God. This one. This one. Rich in atheistical fragility, meism, and idolatry, and destruction. I recently heard a pastor uh, bring up the catechism question. You may know it. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And then this pastor added this. He says, I would add on to it, what is then the chief temptation of man? And he said, to glorify self and enjoy nothing forever. Well, you see, Haman's never been so self-satisfied. He is dancing on air as he leaves the feast. He's all joyful and glad of heart, it says, to borrow from Dwight Schrute. Haman's in a state of perfectenschlag. It's when, quote, everything in a man's life comes together perfectly, 
Although, ironically, the non-word is close to a word that means perfect storm. Life couldn't be any better for Haman. Pride is swelling. And then a raindrop. He's dancing on air and every head is bowing beneath him. He sees Mordecai again. (laughs) Who continued to defy him who would be deified. And perhaps... You've been there before, rightly or wrongly. Someone has wounded you. They're a fly in the ointment. They're sort of a a rival. And and so even though they've gotten under your skin, you just can't let them see that they've gotten under your skin. Your, Your pride just won't let you vent your frustration. Well, true to his name, Haman is again filled with wrath. But he holds it in. He holds it in. Can't let that man know that his defiance is making a dent. Do note this. I hear it all the time amongst my dear kids. How one will do something another doesn't like and the offended one will take vengeance into their own hands and I'll intervene between them and the common refrain from the avenger is, Daddy, she or he made me do it. No, dear. No, dear. You were tempted to do it. You had a choice to do it. And you chose to do it. You could have decided to love your quote-unquote enemy, but you lost out to temptation and decided for wrath. That's a sin all your own. So here, Mordecai's done nothing new or wrong, I don't think, and Haman could respond in a humble, righteous way, but as he is a slave of sin, he just cannot bring himself to do that. Mordecai has crossed him, and Haman, unfortunately, knows nothing about bearing a cross. However he will try, he can't overlook the offense. His cloud nine joy instantly becomes a covered but boiling fury. So church, how shallow is the joy of the godless? How paper thin are their good frames? How leaky are their hearts? There's no weight, there's no root, there's no anchor, there's nothing really to hold them fast when things don't go their way. I pray that we, being weighted with glory, and rooted in grace, and anchored in Christ, will be a people of sturdier and kinder constitution when the world does give occasion to be truly offended. Beloved, let's remember Paul's words and the import of them. You remember these? Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. And the import is, there is always then reason No matter the season, no matter the trial, no matter the sorrow, to rejoice in the Lord. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How superior is the joy Jesus gives us to the joys we elevate in His place. You know the the C.S. Lewis quote about being children who are content to make mud pies in the slums? 
when all the while we've been invited to enjoy a vacation at the sea. And how our problem is not then that we desire too much or too strongly, but how we are what? Far too easily pleased. So we see it here. The spiritual ignorance of Haman, the baby heart. He goes home where he seeks, as one put it, to nurse his bruised ego back to health. And what a nursery. It is what children need. He calls his friends. Hey, I know it's late, but come on over and spend some time with me and Zeresh so I can tell you again in case you've forgotten just how awesome I am. You know, it really is amazing the things that will fill a man's tongue where Christ is absent from the heart. Let me ask us in a preemptory sort of way, in what do we make our boast? That God has known us and therefore we know and understand God. Jeremiah 9. Is that our boast? That Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our sanctification. Christ is our redemption. Christ is our very life. 1 Corinthians 1. Well, Haman's a dead soul. And his boasts follow suit. He fans his money in their faces. Dollar dollar bills, y'all. He's doing this kind of thing. He's got the gun and the money's just, you know. He pumps up his legacy. See how many sons I have. The memory of me will never die. Wrong. He regales them with tales of his astronomical rise. By the way, even Queen Esther honored me today and enjoyed me so much. She aims to do the same tomorrow also. Friends, you've been around. You know who's awesome? This guy. Guy, right? You've been around that person. You can't get a word in edgewise, and if you do, it's always trumped by their superior magnificence. Don't be that person, okay? Number one, it's super agitating. Number two, it shows an utter lack of awareness of God eternal humbled to the grave. He who is truly awesome showed it by making himself nothing in order to serve and to save those that he made. And his disciples, owning the mind of Christ, will follow him in humility. And what follows here then goes to show that what we worship really does determine how we think and how we live. For what we see here in verse 13 is that Haman counts all his glory as what? Nothing. It's all nothing. Because alas, Mordecai. And Haman has an idol. And that idol above all is Haman. Right? His ego will settle for nothing less than universal honor above his pay grade. And so long as he doesn't have that, what he does have is nothing to him. 
See that? Nothing. He can take no enjoyment in it. They are insufficient to satisfy his soul. And we just want to say, Haman, that is exactly right. Actually, one could pray that Haman would see it. But the dead of heart do not see the light of day until they do. They simply abide in darkness and destruction. How do you think Haman's wife and his sons and his friends might have felt hearing they were worthless so long as he was slighted? Is there anything that leaves more destruction in its wake than the idolatry of self? See how it demands absolute allegiance, all or nothing. All or nothing. How it counts the common graces of life. Things God has given us to enjoy. They can be all around us, but this one thing, we just, it's just getting at our idol of self and we can't enjoy anything else because there's one thing. And everything else then is just dung and rubbish. How it rules us. It makes us automatons. It makes us less than humane. It makes us inconsiderate of other people and unloving. How it refuses to forfeit the throne once it's laid hold of it, no threat to little joys will be tolerated here. If the idol is entertainment and a chore won't bow, wrath. My God is preaching and you're interrupting it. If it's Clemson football and the SEC Super League won't bow, all else is as nothing. If it's money and a job market won't bow. If it's a promotion and a boss won't bow. If it's a child and their imperfections won't bow. If it's credit and acclaim and a critic won't bow. Bitterness and wrath aplenty or grace and humility and confession and repentance, and a more developed walk with Jesus, true God of true God. Are we feeding or starving our idols? Well, this is where Haman needs his wife to be a wife indeed. This is where Haman needs his friends to be real friends. This is where he needs a C.H. Spurgeon to come beside him and say, don't be angry with any man who thinks ill of you, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. And yet, how awful their counsel. They affirm him in his self-obsession. If Mordecai is the problem, I don't see the problem. The solution is easy. Get over yourself. No. Get rid of Mordecai. To match his slight of your gigantic magnificence. Make gallows 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet, by the way. And have him impaled upon it for all the kingdom to see. You don't do this to Haman. And then go and eat in peace. Mordecai is just collateral damage on the way to your personal joy and satisfaction. My daughter was watching My Little Pony recently. 
And I was made privy to a song the ponies sing that says, yeah, I'm awesome. Take caution. Watch out for me. I'm awesome as I want to be. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, 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 hey. Well, that's Haman's theme song. And his backup singers just sing along. I'm awesome. Take caution. Watch out for me. I'm as awesome as I want to be. Hey, 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 hey. If you get in the way of my awesomeness, there's going to be a hefty price to pay. I wish I could say such evil thinking wasn't prevalent in our day, but it is. I wish I could say even more, it wasn't so prevalent in my own day-to-day. But far too often it is. God help us to be the bearer of the nails rather than those who aim to hammer them home. It may not always feel like it, but bearing the nails is always the better activity. Esther's prepared to bear the nails. Haman is ready to hammer those things home. One seeks life, the other seeks death. And to this point, neither really knows what will happen next. Haman likely thinks he does. And in light of grace received, perhaps Esther also has some confident hope here. They've both acted, and now we wait on him who acts while we sleep. Whose edict, whose request, whose hope, whose God will win the day? No doubt uh, such questions crossed the minds of Jesus' disciples as he drew closer to his cross, and I'm sure their worries were not helped when he, distinct from Esther, was actually killed by being impaled on stakes of wood, for all the world to see. Our hopes are dashed. What now? Guess it's back to fishing. But no, for you see, on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven where he confirmed that the throne of God is a throne of grace for unworthy sinners. As the truest kind of friend then, Jesus does not confirm us in our sins, but unbelieving friend, He does yet invite you to lay hold of the mercy, not in a golden scepter, but in the crimson flood of God. Esther, quote-unquote, transgressed the king's law. And she won pardon. You and I have truly transgressed the king such that pardon cannot be won. And yet still, it can and will be given to all who repent and trust in Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead. And so, dear friend, won't you put off sin this morning? Won't you put off death? Won't you put off condemnation and find life new and eternal in Jesus Christ?
I pray with all my heart that you will. You come and talk to me about it here in just a moment. Beloved, as those who are alive in Jesus, just see all these things. See all these things. And be moved to trust that in our praying and in our acting and in our waiting, God really is ever working His good and sovereign will. Even while we rest and sleep as we must. He is always faithful. Doing all His purpose. So just see it. See it this morning. Take heart in it. And step out as Esther all the more boldly in service of Jesus. Maybe that ends in gallows. Maybe that ends in gallows. We don't know. What we do know is gallows are not. There are new mercies each day. And grace eternal for those who walk by faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we do ask now that you would be glorified in granting our hearts to repent where we need to repent, to be renewed where we need to be renewed, to rejoice as we always should in Jesus. We ask it for his glory and in his name. Amen.